So uh, welcome today. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I normally don't get to see some of you here in uh, second service because I go to third service. First service is even worse. Um, they're special. Um, you guys are special too. Anyway, I want to welcome you uh, this morning. And um, we have Bibles. If you don't have one, they're under the seats or they're in the back. Uh, we have sermon notes on all of the communion tables. If you have a smartphone, you can bring up the sermon notes using an app called Uversion. Click on Live. You can plug in the zip code or bring us up by GPS. And you can get all of the notes as well. Feels like I'm forgetting something. But I'm going to go ahead and get started. So uh, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 4. It says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, but the Lord is able to make him stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your words. and Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your patience with us. We thank you that you call us and that you empower us and and you enable us, Lord, to live a life that brings you glory and honor. And so I pray that today, Father, you would um, just remind us uh, that you are, are working in us and in those around us, and that you would help us to extend that same grace to one another. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, if you've been around here for a while, you know we're going through a nine-week series called Pharisee University. This is week three. And we're taking nine weeks to look at the characteristics of the Pharisees in Jesus' day and talk about how easy it can be for us to become just like them. Now, much of this comes from a book by Larry Osborne called Accidental Pharisees. And we'll see that becoming like a Pharisee is not something that we set out to do. It's not something we intend to become. But it can happen gradually if we're not careful. And this is because even though we start out with the best intentions... We all have blind spots in our lives, these areas where we just can't see in ourselves. And so this is why we need other people around us to help us see when and where we get off track and we're actually moving away from the gospel rather than moving closer to what Jesus calls us to be. So today we're talking about discipleship and we're talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, there's always been a great deal of debate and discussion in the church as to what constitutes a genuine disciple and true salvation. Just going back to the Reformation period, Calvinists and Arminians, they debated fervently what a person's role is in salvation. And not that long ago, more recently, in the late 20th century, there was um, a debate or a controversy called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And in the late 80s, John MacArthur, he wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in that, he argued that one-third of all Americans who claim to be born-again Christians, according to a Gallup poll taken in 1980, reflected millions who were deceived, possessing a false, soul-destroying assurance. And his point was this, that Jesus must be your Lord for him to be your Savior. And what's implied there when he says Lord is that Jesus has to have your total and your complete submission to him above all else. Now, how many of you here would raise your hand today and say that I have completely and fully committed my life to Jesus above all else? Anybody? Okay, well, 
I think you need to come up here and teach this one for me. <laughs> it's kind of a joke. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> can we really say that? And I guess that's the point of this message. Let's take a look and see. Can we really say that we have complete, undivided, and exclusive commitment to Jesus? So, more specifically, what lordship meant here is that there must be, at the moment that a person trusts in Christ for salvation, that there has to be at least a willingness to commit one's life absolutely to the Lord, even though in actual practice that committed life may not be completely or may not be totally at that time, but at least you have to have a willingness to go there. Now, this whole idea and this this whole thing arose to combat this perceived danger of what was called easy believism. Easy believism. And that's the idea that a person can simply be saved by giving an intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. In other words, a person can be saved by simply believing the facts of the gospel of Jesus as being true without personally committing one's will and one's life to him. And so the age-old question for all of us is really this. Should the barrier of entry be low or should it be high? Did Jesus come to let the riffraff in or to drive the lukewarm out? And the, it's a, the politically correct answer changes every few decades or so. It swings from one extreme to the other. For a while, there's this huge emphasis on evangelism. And the goal there is to get people saved and to fill up heaven but there's not much attention given to discipleship. And maturity is mostly an afterthought. And then that's followed by then a swing towards discipleship. And the goal is to bring people to maturity and to fill up the church with on-fire disciples. But there's not much patience for those who are struggling, those who are fearful or those who are hesitant or not yet fully committed. Well, they're not graciously tolerated. Some of them may even be asked to leave. Larry Osborne, in his book, he says that's more the stage that we're in today. He talks about how there's conferences and books and keynote speakers emphasizing giving it all to Jesus. And spiritual burnout is once again a badge of honor. And in some circles, it's almost a contest to see who's willing to give up more for Jesus. He says there was a booklet that came across his desk, and he writes, a booklet that recently came across my desk put it this way. Plainly put, a relationship with Jesus requires absolute, undivided, exclusive affection. He says, I read that and thought, really? So there's no relationship with Jesus unless he has our absolute, undivided, exclusive affection? Absolute? Question mark. Undivided? Question mark. Exclusive? Question mark. If that's true, there's going to be a lot of Christians in hell, an awful lot. He says, I might be there. Now, There's no question that Jesus sets a high standard. He says that the cost of discipleship is it is costly and that we must count that cost. In Mark chapter 10, verses 21 through 28, we read about a rich young ruler that Jesus told to sell all that he had. And in verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with, not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began saying to him, See, what, we have left everything and followed you. And that was true. Peter did leave everything. The disciples who Jesus called to actually follow him and to be with him left everything behind to follow him. Jesus told a man who was waiting for his father to die before he would follow him that waiting was not an option. And he told his followers to expect hatred and death. And he told them and he tells us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. But he also did some things and he said some things that a lot of people just don't talk a lot about these days. For instance, in Matthew, in, in chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. This woman, she came to Jesus desperate and fearful. She was afraid. She was afraid, and she thought she would sneak up behind Jesus, and she would touch the hem of his garment, and she would go unnoticed. And he praised her for her faith, despite her obvious timidity. John tells us in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But what if you're struggling with fear? What if you're struggling with anxiety? Can you still be a follower of Jesus? Well, a good Pharisee would say no to anybody who asks. Maybe you struggle with doubts or a lack of faith. Can you still be a follower of Jesus and have doubt? Well, a good Pharisee would say no to anybody who asks. But faith and doubt many times go hand in hand. In Mark 9, Jesus challenged the father of a demon-possessed boy to believe that his son could be delivered. And the man, he cries out to Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus cast out the demon. And after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus went out of his way to show himself to a doubting Thomas. And he didn't show up to kick him off the team. He showed up to help him overcome his doubt. And what's even more surprising is that Jesus encouraged crowds of weary and spiritually burdened people to come to him for rest, for a lighter load, for an easy yoke. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's right. Rest, a lighter load, an easy yoke. That's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees taught and what they had preached. They made following God a heavier burden than God himself did. Now, being connected to, to Jesus and receiving rest for our souls, it's something that all of us need to understand today, and we need to learn that from him. You see, when it comes to discipleship, many Protestants, we take a more Roman Catholic approach to the scriptures. You see, Catholics, they stand when the Gospels are read, but they sit for the epistles. And many of today's best-known discipleship teachers, they do essentially the same thing. 
when they're talking about their theology or their paradigm of what it means to follow Jesus, they focus almost exclusively on the words of Jesus. But little attention is paid to the context of Jesus' sayings or how the New Testament epistles apply and interpret his teachings. Now, again, to be clear, there's no question that Jesus demands our allegiance and, and our absolute allegiance. He, is, he deserves that. If he's God in the flesh, then anything less than that is completely foolish. But it's a huge mistake to interpret his strongest and his harshest statements in a vacuum. That may make for powerful sound bites, but it actually makes for bad theology. So if we want to understand what Jesus wants from us, we must include all of his sayings and all of his actions. And also, we can't forget the writings of the apostles and the epistles. After all, they were rather close to the action, and their interpretations were authoritative. So, for example, when Jesus says to leave everything behind, to die to self, and to follow him, what does it mean for you and I today? You see, for those who focus primarily on the words of Jesus in red, well, then it's a no-brainer. Jesus wants all of us to forsake the comfort of home, to head out to the mission field or to the inner city. Or if we can't do that, then at least he wants us to take short-term missions trips and to ratchet down our lifestyle so that we can more generously support those who do. But is that what Jesus really wants? Is that what he wants from all of us? Is he really calling the vast majority to do that? I don't think so. And this is why. A full and careful reading of the Gospels reveals that Jesus only asked a few specific individuals to leave everything behind and follow him. He actually told some who wanted to join him to stay behind. For example, after Jesus freed a man from a legion of demons and cast them into pigs, Mark tells us in Mark 5, verses 18 through 20, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, and he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You see, Jesus never asked the crowds to pack their bags and, to pack their bags and follow him from town to town. At the end of the day, he sent them home. And not one of the New Testament epistles exhorts their readers to head out to the mission field or to go join Paul or Peter in planting churches. In fact, it's just the opposite. Paul told those who were at Corinth to to bloom right there where they were planted. And he told those who were in Thessalonica to lead quiet lives and to mind their own business. And so whatever it means for them or for us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus, these passages have to be considered in the mix. And so we can't just take a few of Jesus' statements and turn them into a global assignment and a responsibility for everybody. We have to interpret his words in the totality of Scripture. Anything else is cut and paste theology. So for us today, to be sure the mechanics are not the same, today as they were back then. We can't literally follow Jesus the way his first disciples did. But the priority and the intentions, the heart and the inner attitudes of disciples are forever the same. Those don't change. You see, in the heart of a disciple, there must be a desire to be like him. There has to be a desire to be like Jesus. 
Matthew tells us, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. But beyond this desire even, there has to be a decision. A decision must be made. And that's the decision to devote oneself to becoming like Christ. So with that intention, once we make that decision, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we start to dwell in the faith and practice of actually following Jesus' teachings. And that's when we begin to rearrange our lives and our specific circumstances around His kingdom priorities. Now, Jesus' call, it's all-encompassing for all of us to follow Him above all else. But we have to remember He calls us while we were still his enemies, unable to follow him. And then he begins to transform us. And then he begins to enable us to follow him more and more with more love and more commitment. And every believer is somewhere in between having the desire to follow him and decidingly surrendering our lives to Jesus above all else. We're all somewhere in between there. And this is where we can become in danger of being like Pharisees. You see, when we feel like we're further along or when we find that you know, we're putting forth more effort or we feel like we're more committed, this is when we can seemingly with good intentions judge those who are struggling with their commitment, when we can find ourselves judging another man's servant. And in the process of doing that, because of sin and because of our unredeemed flesh, We're in danger of deceiving ourselves into thinking that that actually comes from a genuine faith. You see, in the book Redemption by Mike Wilkerson, he talks about how religious practice can become so distorted and so counterfeited that it actually becomes religious addiction. He says that religiosity is about the show. It's about impression management. It's not about true faith in God at all. And it can be an escape from reality. Even the reality of our own sin as we begin justifying how we're not as bad as the next guy. And often this is done by actually doing religious stuff like serving or reading or praying or going to church, all of those things. Jonathan Edwards, in his affections, he writes that the following traits are no certain sign of true faith. These are no certain sign of true faith. Number one, Intense affections. Two, fluency, fervency, or abundance of religious speech. Three, spontaneous spiritual experiences. Four, a tendency for the words of Scripture to come to mind just at the right time. Five, showing love. Six, conviction and confession followed by comfort and joy. Seven, great confidence as to the genuineness of the affections experienced. I mean... You think about that, really? Edwards tears away almost every sign that you ever thought of that would be evidence of genuine faith. Now, he does clearly say that true faith will be accompanied by those signs. But his point is that each of these signs can be counterfeited. And they often are because all idolatry is essentially deceptive. Now, a few weeks ago, if you were with us, we celebrated the Holy Week culminating in Easter where Jesus, our hero, he conquers Satan, sin, and death for all of us. And in the passion narratives, in every gospel account, we find an unlikely disciple. 
a follower of Jesus who largely goes unnoticed, who's un, unappreciated. And he makes only a cameo appearance after Jesus' death. But then he disappears. And you might be familiar with him, but I doubt you've given any serious thought about him or his role in this world-altering event. Now, I, I know that I hadn't even thought about this, but I'm talking about Joseph, if Arimathea. And Jesus was buried in his tomb. Now, his role in the story, it seems insignificant, a brief sidebar, but really unworthy of a deeper look. Now, it was well known that he courageously stepped forward to ask for the body of Jesus and that Jesus was placed in Joseph's tomb. But there's something incredibly important here that I think most of us probably miss, and that is what kind of disciple Joseph was. You see, he was the kind of disciple that none of us want to be. If you read the story carefully and you compare all of the gospel accounts, and if you didn't know how the story ended, most of us would probably write him off as a loser. He'd be the poster child of a counterfeit disciple, the disciple that no one wants to be. He's exactly the kind of Christ follower that most speakers preach against or ridicule or warn us about. And that's exactly why his story is so important because it's paradigm-busting. It messes with our preconceived notions about Jesus and discipleship and, and what it means to please God and the type of people that God actually uses. You see, the key players, we think, were the ones that were directly involved with Jesus' death and his resurrection. We see that Jesus' burial was simply just a connecting point between those two events. And we assume that Joseph's tomb was necessary because, well, dead bodies have to be buried somewhere, right? Well, well, no, they really don't. In the first century, what they did with the bodies of condemned criminals is they just threw them on top of the trash heap, the rubbish heap. They threw them on top where they would just be there for scavenging dogs and for vultures to, to eat. Think about it. No Joseph of Arimathea. No body to resurrect. No empty tomb to point to. We can't miss this also. Joseph was the only disciple who stepped forward to claim the body of Jesus. All the others were nowhere to be found. A few of the women hung around to see what would happen next. But everybody else apparently was so shell-shocked and so heartbroken that they just left. But that's not all. Joseph's actions, they fulfilled a very important messianic prophecy you see, Isaiah had prophesied that the suffering servant would, would die as a condemned man. He would be assigned to the grave of the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. And that's a really strange combination. Yet because Joseph was a rich man and because Jesus was buried in his tomb, he filled that prophecy to the letter. Now, we're not exactly sure what the significance of that prophecy is, but no matter why God chose a rich man's tomb, Joseph was the one that he used to actually pull it off. And so without Joseph, again, Jesus' body would have been dumped in the rubbish heap and it would have been long gone before Easter morning. So not only was Joseph an unappreciated disciple, he was also an unlikely hero. And to see what I mean, we have to look at all of the gospel accounts starting in Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60, it says this, When it was evening there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it 
in his, in an, he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. So the first thing that we learn here is that Joseph was a rich disciple. Now, not formally rich. He was currently rich. And we also discover that he had been a disciple for a while, for some time. So we have this rich disciple, which is already a problem for those who think that rich and disciple are two words that just don't go together. Secondly, we see in in the Gospel of Mark that he was a very powerful political figure. In Mark chapter 15, verse 43, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Mark adds that Joseph was also a prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin, which was the group of 71 men who acted like the Supreme Court over Israel. And these were the people that actually turned Jesus over to Pilate. And so what do we have now? We have a rich disciple who was a prestigious member of the group that condemned Jesus to death and turned him over to Pilate. But when you think that that's confusing, it actually gets worse. Luke tells us that he was a righteous man. In Luke 23, verses 50 and 51, it says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So Luke now adds that he was a good and righteous man. He had not consented to the council's decision to turn Jesus over to Pilate. But that begs a question then, doesn't it? If he didn't consent, if he was a disciple, if he was a righteous man and he didn't agree with the decision, then why didn't he step forward to stop it? Why didn't he say something? I mean, after all, he wasn't a junior member. He was a prominent member. And yet none of the gospel accounts even hint that there was any resistance surfacing in the council. As a matter of fact, they all imply that there was a strong consensus. And so now we have this confusing picture. we got a rich disciple. He has a prominent position in the council that turned Jesus over to Pilate. And he's called a good and a righteous man. And it seems that he does nothing to stop this travesty of Jesus' trial. And finally, it gets even more perplexing than that. John tells us that he was a secret disciple. In John chapter 19, in verse 38, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. So what we see here is that Joseph didn't openly confess Christ before his death and that he laid low because he was afraid of his fellow Jewish leaders. In other words, he feared losing wealth and status, and so he hid in the weeds until after everything kind of blew over, after Jesus had died. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that he was called a righteous man and a disciple, and he did those things, I would hardly call that the behavior of a righteous man or a disciple. In fact, I always thought that the term term secret disciple was an oxymoron. Now, can you think of any modern-day Josephs today? Maybe you actually are one. A good Pharisee would likely call you a phony or a fraud. That's what they would call Joseph rather than a disciple. We might even use them as examples of everything that's wrong with shallow and uncommitted Christianity today, except for one small problem, and that is Jesus didn't call Joseph out. He didn't write him off. He didn't tear him apart. He used him for his glory. 
And he described him as a legitimate disciple, as a good and as a righteous man. We have to remember, those are God's labels. Those are the words that God used to describe Joseph when he was a rich, secret follower, afraid of what he might lose before he stepped forward to claim the body of Jesus. But there's something else that should humble us in this story, and that is who's missing? Who's missing from this story? All of the hardcore followers of Jesus who had left everything to follow him, they're nowhere to be found here. These are the guys that we would point to as examples of what it means to radically follow after Jesus. But in the darkest moment, when all seemed lost, the courageous lacked courage, and the the committed showed no commitment. And it was only a frightened, secret disciple who stepped up to the plate. That should make all of us stop and just pause seriously for a moment. It should make us hesitant to pat ourselves on the back for any sacrifices that we've already made. The odds are we are not as strong as we think we are. Jesus' hand-picked disciples, they certainly weren't. And it's frightening to realize that the faithful few who had previously stuck with Jesus through thick and thin, they bailed out just as quickly and it's completely as they did. It's an amazing thought. And it makes me wonder if any of us can lay claim to fully and completely taking up our cross and denying ourselves and loving him above life itself. I I expect if the truth be told that none of us has a devotion that is absolute, that is undivided, or that is as exclusive as we may think it is. And it should also make us hesitant to call out or to write off, or to tear apart those who struggle with full devotion or reckless abandonment for Jesus? Who am I to blast a secret disciple if Jesus didn't? Who am I to write off the not yet fully committed if Jesus didn't? Who am I to say that God can't use the kind of people that he actually used? Again, Romans 14.4, Paul said, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, we have to ask ourselves that if in our quest to purify the church, we've actually become more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. Accidental Pharisees, maybe, but Pharisees nonetheless. Matthew, quoting Isaiah's prophecy regarding Jesus, in Matthew 12, verse 20, He writes, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. You see, a reed was used for measuring or for support. And when its straightness was lost because of bending or because of cracking, then it was useless. It was no good. A strip of linen cloth that was used to light a lamp wick, if it smokes or if it smolders, well, it's not good for giving off light anymore. It's just a source of pollution. It's actually in danger of being snuffed out altogether. And you see, when it comes to bruised reeds, when it comes to smoldering wicks, when it comes to weary saints, Pharisees have no patience. They pile on heavy burdens and lots of guilt, but they don't lift a finger to make things any easier. They thin the herd at every opportunity. But not so with Jesus. The bruised reed he will not break. And the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. To the weary and the heavily burdened, he offers rest 
He offers a lighter load. He offers an easy yoke. And that's the beauty of the story of Joseph of Arimathea. It puts a face on Jesus' compassion and his patience and his grace for the struggling saint. Joseph was the ultimate smoldering wick. And many of us would probably be tempted to just snuff him out. But Jesus fanned his flame. He kept it alive, even if just barely. And eventually the time came when Joseph's flame burned brighter than all of the others. You see, as long as the wick is still smoldering, then there's still hope. And we can be like Jesus and we can fan that flame brighter. Or we can stomp it out as unworthy and useless and embarrassing to God. And we can be like Pharisees. The choice is ours. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And we're going to go to communion like we do every week. And and this week, in in light of the message, we, we realize and we remember that the only reason that our wick is even lit is because Jesus, he died for our sins and he rose again and he's reconciled us back to the Father. And he's the one who has given us new life and we've been born again because of him. And so when we come to communion, we take that cracker and we break it and we remember his body, his his sacrifice for us and we dip it in the wine or the grape juice and we remember his blood that was shed for us. And because of that, our wick is lit. Some of them may be smoldering. Some of them may be burning a little brighter. But it's only because of him that it's lit at all. And so we come to communion and we thank him for that sacrifice. We're going to worship God as we sing some more songs. We're going to worship God as we uh, give of our tithes and offerings. We don't pass a plate. We have boxes on the side walls and in the back. And our giving is a response to what God has given to us. We're going to worship God through our fellowship. That's why we put food in the back for you guys to hang out in the lounge and encourage one another. And we want to worship God through prayer. So maybe today you've realized that maybe your wick is just smoldering. Maybe it's barely lit. And you'd like somebody to pray for you, to to help encourage you and fan that flame. Pray with them. Maybe you've realized that, you know what, You, you actually have been judging other people because they're not as committed as you are. And God has shown you that, you know, this is something that has to be changed and we have to be able to demonstrate his grace. Go back and ask for prayer for that. So pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your words. Lord, we, we thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your patience with us. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to finish the work that you started. Lord, it's by your grace and mercy that you have, you have lit our wicks at all. Some of us are smoldering, Lord, and are barely casting a light. Some of us may be burning a little brighter. All of it is only because of your grace and your mercy. I pray that you would fan our flames today and that you would give us the power to encourage and fan the flames of those around us as well. Father, help us to see one another the way you see us, Lord. Graciously, patiently, encouraging, loving us.
thank you that you've saved us. We thank you for your calling. We thank you that you are making us more and more into your image, Lord. And we know that that does look differently for each person. We pray, Father, that you would fan that desire in us to commit our hearts wholeheartedly to you, that you would be glorified in our lives. We give you thanks. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.